All right. Good morning, everyone. Why don't you grab your seats? Oh, it's wonderful to be with you. And what a beautiful time of worship we've already had this morning. The presence of God here has just been so powerful. Um, I'm going to read from Jonah chapter 3 and 4. This is the last in our Jonah series. We're going to look at Jonah chapter 4, but I just want to start the very end of chapter 3. First, before I do that, I just want to say my sincere condolences to any Lions fans in the house this morning and for any Pies supporters. Yes. May you be gracious in your victory. Let's read scripture. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, that is the Ninevites, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Chapter 4, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. The Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for this passage of scripture that we have been able to read together this morning, and I pray as we explore it, as we look at what it is that you might want to say to us through it this morning, that we would hear your voice, we would hear your word. Come Holy Spirit, and bring your wisdom and your knowledge, your insight, your conviction, your challenge uh, to this moment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Jonah chapter 4, it's been quite a journey. I love the book of Jonah. Uh, a friend of mine uh, who was also a mentor started a small business in Canada in the 70s. That's now a global company with stores stretching from Melbourne to Copenhagen and who is a dedicated follower of Jesus. 
And he once said to me something that has proven true in my life many, many times over, more times than I can count. He said, if you want to do something new in God, you want to do something new in God, you first need a new vision of who God is for you. If you want to do something new in God, you first need a new vision of who God is for you. What does this mean? It means, I think, that your vision of God, your understanding of who God is, your experience of God, your measure of faith, if you like, has brought you so far in your life, and that's good. But if you desire to do something new, to go further, to take on a new challenge, to go deeper in your discipleship, to trust God in a new area of your life where perhaps you haven't seen the transformation and change and growth that you've been longing for, you are going to need a new vision which comes from a new experience of who God is for you. I'm not saying that what you have understood about God up to this point has been wrong, just incomplete. And I think we can all agree, if we're honest, that our vision of God is pretty small compared to the reality of who God truly is in his full nature and power. I think we can all say amen to that. That's a no-brainer. Uh, and even if we've experienced significant transformation and dramatic moments of God's love and power in our life, you know, even if we've seen God move mountains in our lives, and even if we memorized the whole Bible and read everything we could that's ever been written in theology, we know that it would only be a drop in the ocean compared to the immensity of God's true nature and character and power. Just a drop in the ocean. And that tells me one thing at least, that this life of faith should be an adventure, right? It's so easy for us to become bored and jaded and just settle for a, a very uh, domesticated God. When in actual fact, we're dealing with, as, uh, as Mr. Beaver said in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's not a safe lion, but he's good. He's not a safe lion, but he's good. We're on an incredible adventure of faith, and that should excite us because there's so much more to discover and so much more to do and so much more that we can learn and so much more that God has in mind for us. Amen. There's so much more that God wants to do in our lives. We've only just begun to scratch the surface. Even if you've walked with Jesus your whole life, you've only just begun to scratch the surface of what is possible and of what God has for you in his love and his power. And it's so easy for us to forget this, as I said, to domesticate God, to reduce him down to the narrow borders of our own small vision. But one thing I've learned about God over the years is that he will not remain domesticated for very long. He likes to color outside the lines uh, that we set for him. He's always at work to enlarge our vision, to expand our souls, to get us to dream again. As the prophet Joel said, in the days of the new covenant, uh, we, we can go to that slide, I will pour out my spirit on all people. All people. That's a promise for you today, this morning. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Amen. That's our birthright as children of God filled with the Holy Spirit that this life we live as followers of Jesus is meant to be a life of vision and dreams and imagination and adventure. 
But how easily do we domesticate God down into the narrow borders of our past experience when there's so much more to discover? Uh, And it's fascinating to me that along with this promise in Joel 2, um, Joel says the same thing about God that Jonah does. (coughs) Verse 12, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, which is what the Ninevites did, of course. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is, what? Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, abounding in love, not miserly with his love, abounding in love, generous with his love, and he relents from sending calamity. So the question I want to explore as we look at this last chapter in Jonah, is how can we position ourselves to receive something new from the Lord? Are you longing to receive something new from the Lord? Are you bored in your faith a little bit? Is it time for you to be refreshed and renewed, to have a new vision, to dream again, to get excited about your faith again, to believe that this life that you're living in Jesus should be one that is adventurous and challenging and stretching, but also full of joy? Amen. So how do we position ourselves to receive something new from the Lord? That's what I want to explore this morning, to receive a new vision of his presence and power, to experience his love again in a new way. First thing we want to say about this is that we must rend our hearts, not our garments. What does that mean? It means that we should do, effectively, the opposite of what Jonah does. We should do the opposite of what Jonah does. Jonah is... Uh, a lesson, a caution, a cautionary tale for us this morning. So we should do the opposite of what Jonah does. Who is, I think actually when I reflected on Jonah in the light of the prodigal son story that we looked at a few weeks back, Jonah is really the epitome of the elder brother. He has older brother syndrome. Jonah is infected with it and he's full of anger and bitterness, even though he's seen God do amazing things. And so we want to deal with that this morning in our own hearts. So what has Jonah done? He's done what the Lord asked of him, right? He served the Lord, he did what God asked, but he has no love in his heart for the Lord at all. He's been obedient, he's done his duty, but he doesn't care about God, and he certainly doesn't care about other people. He just cares about himself. He's only thinking about himself and about what he thinks is fair or right and wrong or just from his point of view. In other words, he has rent his garments. He's fulfilled the law. He's done what was required. But all along, God hasn't wanted just Jonah's obedience. He's wanted Jonah's heart. That's what God has wanted from the beginning hasn't just wanted Jonah's obedience, he's wanted Jonah's heart. And that's what Jonah misses, I think. And what's crazy, however, is that Jonah knows this. He knows that it's not what God has wanted, just brute obedience. Jonah knows this about God. He even says it himself out of his own mouth, which reminds me of something that Jesus said about the Pharisees. You honor me with your lips. You know the right thing to say, but your heart's are far from me. And that's what Jonah is dealing with. 
He knows the right thing to say. He knows the right thing to do, but his heart is far from the Lord. So he says it himself, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love and who relents from sending calamity. I know this about you. I know this is who you are. So Jonah knows the character of God, at least he knows it intellectually, he knows it in his head, he knows what God is like, but Jonah's problem, the classic older brother syndrome, is that while he understands the theology and he can quote the Bible verses, he actually does not know God in his heart. It hasn't moved from here to here. So there's no love for God in his heart, and that just struck me actually as we were singing that last song this morning, Our confession of faith is based on the love of God. I will love you. And why why can we say that? We can't say that because it naturally occurs within us. We can say it because God has first loved us. That's the only reason we can say, I love you, Lord, because he first said, I love you. He first loved us, and the response of our hearts, if we've experienced that love, is to say, yes, Lord, and I love you. But Jonah can't say that. I mean, he can say it. He can confess it um, as a a truth that he knows in his mind, but it hasn't yet been something that's living, that's alive in his heart. So Jonah knows the character of God, at least intellectually, but not from the heart. And it struck me just how many parallels then there are between the Jonah story and the prodigal son. You know, here God is presented to us as a loving father, who wants to extend mercy to the Ninevites, who are what? The younger brothers, as it were. They don't deserve it. They haven't earned it by any stretch. It is all grace in the same way that the father is looking and longing to receive back his younger son and forgive him and love him and restore him. This is what God wants to do for the Ninevites. In fact, the Ninevites were a terrible people, violent and cruel. I mean, Jonah had good reasons to not want them to receive God's mercy. You know, if there are people on earth at that time who deserved destruction, it was surely the Ninevites. And we've avoided outlining some of their practices that we know from history because over these last couple of weeks we've had children in the room. They were terrible, terrible people. Needless to say, you did not want to be captured by the Ninevites. They were merciless to their enemies. Even so, even so, God is gracious and compassionate and wants to do something marvelous among the Ninevites. He wants to raise them up out of the pig swill that they have created for themselves. He wants to save them. He wants to show them grace. But in order to do that, they must first acknowledge their need of God's grace. They must, they must first face up to their sins, which is why God wants to send Jonah to preach to them so that they have an opportunity to repent. That's what this has been about from the beginning. God's heart to save the Ninevites, to send a preacher so that they can hear the word of the Lord and respond to it. But Jonah doesn't want to do that. And we'll really just quickly recap the story for those who haven't been around the last couple of weeks, probably haven't read, maybe haven't read the book of Jonah. You know, Jonah doesn't want to preach to the Ninevites, so he is, in chapter one, running away from God's call. And he gets on board a boat to sail to Tarshish, like the other side of the world, and the Lord sends a great storm to try and sink the ship, 
The sailors realize what's going on, Jonah admits to what's going on, and they throw him overboard, where Jonah is swallowed by a huge fish. He spends three days in the belly of the fish when he realizes that he cannot escape from God. He cannot get away from God's presence. So he acknowledges God's greatness, apologizes for running, and says that he will do what God has asked of him. And so we get to chapter three, verse one, after he's puked out of the fish, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and can pro proclaim to it the message I give you. And so Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Looks like everything is great at this point, except it isn't, it's far from great. And so we read that Jonah does indeed outwardly perform all that God is asking of him, but something smells very fishy and it's not just because Jonah needs a bath. If you read Jonah's sermon, I mean, it's like the bare minimum of what he is required to say, right? And it's all hellfire and damnation. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He doesn't even tell them about God's love, about God's desire to forgive them. He just says, you guys are bound for destruction. Repent or burn. That's it. And then he goes outside the city, sits down, sets up a shelter and smugly waits for God to destroy the Ninevites. But what actually happens is the Ninevites repent and God shows grace to them. And Jonah is furious about it. He's so angry, he says, that he wants to die. I'm so angry, I want to die. The last words out of Jonah's mouth in the book. I don't know about you, but to me this seems really weird, really odd. I mean, God has just done something miraculous through Jonah. I mean, if it was me, I'd be, well, I think, I'd be celebrating. So why is Jonah so angry with God about it? Why is he so upset? Jonah's like, I knew you would do this. I knew it. That's why I ran from you from the beginning. I knew you'd be compassionate to those Ninevites, even though they don't deserve it. That's why I didn't want to go. I'm so angry with you, God. And what's going on? And the problem, I think, is that Jonah's religion is fundamentally based on moralism, not on what we would call the gospel. It's based on moralism, not on what we would call the gospel, the good news. It's a religion based on obedience. It has nothing to do with the gospel of grace. And this religion says, God has rules. If I keep them, I'm accepted, things will go well for me. If I break them, I'm rejected, things will go badly for me. Either way, look at what this gospel or this vision of the gospel does. It makes it all about you, it makes it all about me, what I can do for God. And if I can be good enough, if I can keep the rules, then God will bless me and my life will go well. So either way, it's about me and what I do or don't deserve. If I can be the kind of person God wants me to be, and the engine for that is obedience by doing the right thing, then I'll be blessed. And I think this is very common. I think a lot of Christians actually think that that's what this is about. I mean, culturally, it's a kind of meritocracy. I mean, we live in a meritocracy, or at least kind of, a meritocracy that's based on capitalism and often that creeps into our understanding of faith, doesn't it? We think that if we can work hard um, and, and, and prove something to God, if we can earn our stripes, then we'll be blessed, we'll get what we deserve, and life will be good, we'll be rewarded. 
And you take that into the church. If I go to church, if I give, if I read my Bible, get involved in some kind of mission, if I don't get drunk or do drugs or commit sexual sins, then I will please God and life will go well for me. And so how many of you, let me ask you honestly, how many of you feel like when you screw up, when you mess up, when you sin, when you don't measure up to whatever standard you've set for yourself, feel like God has turned his face away from you? That now God is against you? I don't need a show of hands, but I can see by the nodding in the room that this is something that is still deeply embedded in our thinking about God and about ourselves. Interestingly, this vision of the gospel has nothing to say about what's going on in our hearts. It's all about what we do on the outside. It has nothing to say about greed, selfishness, lack of compassion or concern for other people, because this religion isn't about what's going on in your heart. This is about how you look on the outside, what you can obviously do on the outside for God, rather than cultivating within you a heart that is aligned with God's heart. You know what I'm saying? We look and behave well on the outside, and that's what we're concerned about. And you can feel confident then if you look like you're put, well put together and everything's going nicely and, and well in your life, that God is on your side. But this isn't the gospel. And I think the tell in this story is pretty clear because far from becoming like God in our likeness, we go the other way. We become like Jonah. We become over time, when you live in that gospel for long enough, you become over time just like the older brother. And what is that? That is that the standard that we expect of ourselves is also how we measure others. And if other people don't meet up with our vision of godliness and righteousness, then they don't deserve God's blessing or help. The problem is, our hearts can be black with hate and selfishness, but we don't see it because we're looking to the outside appearance. We're looking to what we can do on the outside that we hope will impress God. We become hypocrites in the true sense of the word. We put on a mask, we dress that mask up so it looks really good, but underneath the mask there can be a scowling face of hate so long as the mask that we present to God and to the world looks clean and shiny and bright. We're concerned about the outside, not the inside, and Jesus warned us about this many times. He called it the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees who wash the outside of the cup but don't take care of what's inside the cup, and that's what really matters. In fact, he called them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Now, if that doesn't get you crucified, I don't know what, what, what will. The point is, they looked good on the outside. They looked like they had it all together, they, but in truth, they were whitewashed tombs full of dead things. And that's the religion of the scribes and Pharisees. That's older brother syndrome. That's what's going on in Jonah, and that is what happens in the lives of many Christians who do not understand the gospel. They don't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they believe in the gospel of the Pharisees. So we see two things in Jonah. Firstly, he is arrogant toward others. He really believes that he's better than them. Marching through Nineveh shouting, you're all gonna die. God's judgment is coming upon you. All the while not understanding that 
this whole thing has actually been about God's judgment in Jonah's life and what God wants to do in Jonah's heart. So his preaching is arrogant and judgmental. There's no care, there's no compassion, there's no love. And this kind of moralism, this religion of the Pharisees leads us into a very, very arrogant posture toward other people. And so that's why he's so angry with God, because when God forgives the Ninevites, there's this fantastic verse in chapter 4, verse 1, to Jonah, this all seemed very wrong. <laughs> and he became angry. This is all wrong. Why? Why did they get forgiveness so easily? You know, and this is something that we can do so easily when we compare ourselves with other people. You know, I have given so much for you, Lord Jesus. I've sacrificed so much for you. I have laid down so much for you, and yet I don't feel blessed. Why are you blessing them more than me when it's clearly obvious that they're not following you in the same way that I am? Do you ever find yourself comparing your faith with the faith of other people based on how well their life is going compared with yours? This is the religion of the scribes and Pharisees. This thought can take root in our hearts. Very simple little thought, three words. It's not fair. It's not fair. So Jonah has the same problem that the older brother has in the prodigal son. Luke 15, it's on the screen, verse 28. The older brother became, what? Angry. And answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you. I have done what you asked and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, see what's going on here? The older brother clearly thinks he's better than the youngest son. This son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, and you kill the fattened calf for him. How is that fair? Come on. That is just not fair. So moralism always ends up in bitterness and anger toward God because it treats God like a divine judge rather than a loving father. And that's the problem in the prodigal son story. The older brother thinks of his father as a divine judge rather than someone who loves him. And so he's obedient. He does what he's told he does the right thing, he's good, but his heart has shifted so far away from his father that there's no love there anymore. And I just want to ask you a question this morning. Are you in danger of becoming an older brother? Have things happened in your life that have led you to a point where bitterness and anger are starting to take root in your soul and you are really questioning whether God is good and whether he really loves you? Maybe you've already shifted from that point. Maybe for years, in fact, you've been doing what you felt God has asked of you, but there hasn't been any love in your heart for him. I just want to ask you honestly, is that where you have ended up? Or are you in danger of going down that road? And I had a really strong sense during the worship this morning to ask you that question. If you allow older brother syndrome to take root in your heart and in your thinking. I just want to tell you right now, friends, the only place that road leads you is bitterness.
doesn't take you anywhere good. So if that's you this morning, when we take communion later after the message, really want you to deal with that before the Lord, honestly. If you're angry with him, if you feel that bitterness is starting to take root in your heart, deal with it because it will destroy you and it will suck all the joy out of your life. And it's so easy for us to end up in that space. And we feel like we did everything God asked of us. You know, we, we gave, we went to church, we were obedient. But it didn't seem like he upheld his end of the bargain. I didn't get the job I was after. I didn't get the healing I was looking for. I didn't get the spouse that I wanted. I didn't have the family that I wanted. I did my part and it looks like God's failed me and yet he seems to have blessed so many other people. Moralism, righteousness based on works does not produce in us the kind of faith we want to have and it does not form in us the kind of character that God wants us to be, the kind of people we're called to be. It makes us look good on the outside, but destroys us on the inside. So, what must we do instead? If we want the gospel to go from our heads to our hearts, in this story, then, we we see a, a hint of the kind of journey we need to go on if we want this to take place. In Jonah, we get this humorous, humorous little interaction between God and Jonah, which really brings us to the point of the whole thing. Jonah waits to see what's going to happen to the Ninevites, and when God doesn't destroy them, he's angry. So God provides a plant for Jonah to rest under, and he's happy about that. And then he sends a worm to destroy the plant. What's that about? Jonah is now unhappy, and he's angry again. Twice God asks Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Twice God asks Jonah, and he asks us, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah's reply is very honest, and I like this. I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. That's how angry I am. And what's God doing here? He's showing Jonah that, yes, he's been obedient, but in the process, what a petty, vindictive, selfish, and bitter person he's become. And the plant is designed to reveal what is truly going on in Jonah's heart so he can't hide from it anymore. This whole, this whole time, Jonah's been on the run. He hasn't been on the run from God. He's been on the run from himself. And one thing I've learned in life, and I've moved many times, is that you can change jobs, you can change cities, you can change countries, you can change churches. Try and get away from things that might be bothering you. But let me tell you, there's one person that you can never get away from, and that's you. You take you wherever you are. And so if there are issues that arise in every place where you turn up, maybe the problem is not the circumstances. Maybe the problem is... And we see this, like Jonah is happy, then he's angry. Then he's happy, then he's angry. Like there's something in him that isn't settled. Circumstances change, and it changes his mood like that. 
And what is God doing here? He's showing Jonah again that while he's been obedient, he's done what was asked of him, in the process, his heart has become bitter. Don't let your obedience to the Lord turn your hearts to bitterness. Remember, friends, that Jesus didn't say, I've called you my servants, I've called you my slaves, I've called you my workers. Now, what did he say? I have not called you my servants, I have called you my friends. He's always wanted our hearts. He's wanted friendship. He's wanted to do this with us, not just through us, not just use us, but walk with us and, walk and move in us and out of us in partnership, in friendship, in relationship. This is what God wants for us. And so do you see what's going on? Jonah thinks it's unfair that God is not destroying the city. He also thinks it's unfair that he's not getting any shade. And to him, it's all the same thing. Jonah is having a crisis of faith because God is not acting the way God should, as far as Jonah's concerned. According to Jonah's own sense of justice, the Ninevites aren't good people, yet God is blessing them. I've been good, and God is cursing me. He's taken away this plant. And he wants to die over a plant. There's something deeply wrong in Jonah's soul. And how often have I, and how often have you, been largely indifferent to the suffering of others or arrogantly stood over them and proclaimed that they deserved it, Yet something quite small, really, in the scheme of things, goes wrong in our own lives, and suddenly God is our enemy. God's abandoned me. My life is falling apart. When you can think about what we go through compared with what many others have had to suffer, I think the, James is right, our light and momentary troubles. In the scheme of things, in the purposes of God, if we can think about our lives from an eternal perspective, our light and momentary troubles, will be so far outweighed by the glory that awaits us. But if you're just thinking about yourself all the time, rather than this incredible story that you're part of and the grace of God that's at work in your life, then you'll reduce the gospel down to your good or bad behavior. And how horrible is it to live in that kind of headspace? when we're called to live into this beautiful, expansive, creative, imaginative story that is changing the world, that we get to be part of, that God's invited us into in friendship by his grace through the blood of Jesus, and yet we bring it all down into our narrow little troubles that we get so upset about, and yet there are people around the world suffering in ways that go so far beyond what any of us have experienced, or maybe most of us have experienced. Truth is, Jonah doesn't, and we often don't believe in the gospel. And this story really is about the gospel. Yes, the gospel is in the Old Testament. Jonah says it himself. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding, rich in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, of course, the fullness of the gospel will not be revealed until Christ comes. But the, the essence of it is in that statement, that God is gracious and compassionate and loves us, abounding in love, and he wants to relent from sending calamity. He wants to heal us. He wants to help us. That's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? 
And that will, of course, be revealed in its fullness in Christ, but here it is in its in a small form, in a germ form. God is a gracious God. And so we see that true transformation only comes through the gospel. Jonah's moralism and obedience based on religion is shown in this story to be totally bankrupt. Meanwhile, the heart of God for the Ninevites and the response of the Ninevites is the demonstration of the true gospel. In the end, it's Nineveh, not Jonah who gets it right. Everything in this story is back to front. Firstly, they recognize that without God's grace, they're in deep trouble. Their sinful behavior has separated them from God and there's nothing that they can do to fix it. All they can do is turn to him and repent, to ask for forgiveness, to receive a gift that they could not earn and they definitely don't deserve. That is the gospel, a gift from God that we do not deserve and we could not earn. All we have to do is repent and ask for it. And God is gracious and compassionate. Now maybe you feel this morning like you don't deserve it and you've tried to earn it and you're so tired, you're, you're, you're done with this life of obedience. You want something better than that. Now of course we're called to obedience, but we all know in our heart of hearts that true obedience is meant to flow from love, not from duty. And when we love Jesus, when we've experienced his love and we respond to his love with uh, our own heart of love, that leads us to do the right thing from the inside out, not just from the outside in. Something changes in us when we encounter the love of God and it brings us to a place in the power of the Holy Spirit where we are able to do what is right. But if you try to force it through, Without that love, it just burns you out. You would just end up exhausted and angry and bitter. It's exactly what is going on in Jonah. And so we read the king's reaction in chapter 3, verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh. He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in dust. And he called the whole city, the whole nation, to repentance, to a season of fasting. He understood something. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it goes on to say that when you compare our own good things to God's holiness, we come out looking pretty filthy, like filthy rags. Uh, our, Our good deeds are just not good enough to save us. They never have been and they never will be. And this is something that our society totally rejects. In our culture, salvation is self actualization to express yourself to look good on the outside so that other people can celebrate you. But biblical salvation is self-surrender, to rend your heart, to rend your heart, not your garments, not your outward appearance. Let God get into your heart. Let him into those places that you actually aren't really sure you want him to go. There's things in your life that you're ashamed of and you don't feel like you can be real with God about them. Rend your heart. Open it up to him. Break your heart in his presence. Let him in. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. If you let him in to your heart, he will fill you with grace. He will fill you with compassion. 
He will fill you with love. And that will change you, but it will also change the way that you treat other people. Because Jonah doesn't care about the Ninevites, but one of the greatest signs that the gospel has really gotten into us is that we stop thinking so much about ourselves and we start thinking more about others, about what other people need, how we can help other people. Because we're freed from having to think and obsess over ourselves because we know we're loved, we know we're forgiven, we can get on with helping other people. We can get on with having an outward focused heart and life. And that's, I think, one of the greatest signs that the gospel has really gotten into us, that we've stopped thinking about ourselves and we start thinking more about others. A new commandment I give you, just one, that you love one another as I have loved you. Yes, we need to receive the love of God. And when that's gotten into us, our obedience starts to look more like, how can I love other people rather than what do I need to do to impress God? Are you with me? And that's a huge shift. When you start thinking my obedience is actually about how I can love and serve other people rather than what I can do to make myself look better in the eyes of God, you have experienced the gospel. So the king calls the city to repent. Verse 9, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And of course, we believe as we come to the communion table this morning that that is exactly what has happened in Christ Jesus, that he on our behalf went to the cross to absorb the wrath of God against our sin, his fierce anger toward our sin, in order that we might be freed from it, forgiven, set free, given a new heart, a new soul, a new life, a new beginning, and then we can get on with living into the life that God has called us as children of God, freed from everything that once held us back, that once enchained us, that once enslaved us. This is what we celebrate when we come to the communion table, that on the cross, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. In order that, and this just blows my mind every time I say it, in order that we, you know how this ends? We might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? That means you now have nothing to prove to God through your good behavior because in Christ Jesus you have become the righteousness of God. And when that thought gets into your heart, it will change everything about you. And now you'll long to be obedient to your loving Heavenly Father because you know it is the way of righteousness. It is the way of life. It is the way of joy. It's the way that enables you to become and be all that God has called you to be. It's not a duty. It's not service. It is an offering of your life that is a loving, living sacrifice. Are you with me? So this morning as we come to the communion table, I want to ask you again, if sitting here this morning you have realized that you are an older brother or you are in danger of becoming an older brother, 
and I want to plead with you this morning, as you receive communion, pray that the Spirit of God may restore to you the joy of your salvation. May remind you this morning that you did not earn this gift. It is yours because you are loved. And you can lay aside your anger. You can lay aside your bitterness. You can lay aside your disappointment. And remember again that this gift of grace that we've received in Christ Jesus is the most incredible gift that you have and ever will receive. And so if you're looking to other people as a sign of whether or not you are blessed, don't do that. Look to Christ who gave you and blessed you every spiritual blessing more than you could ever possibly imagine. And that is yours this morning. It's a free gift. All you have to say is, Lord, I'm sorry and thank you. I'm sorry and thank you. I receive it this morning. And as we prepare uh, to take communion, I've got a prayer that we will pray together. Very simple communion prayer. Just take a moment to read it. And then I'm going to get you to stand and we'll pray this prayer together. Let's pray this together. I encourage you to open up your hands and let's stand. Merciful God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have done. Transform what we are. Wash away our wrongdoing and cleanse us from our sin. Renew a right spirit within us and restore to us the joy of your salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord.